So we are coming toward the last days of our retreat. We get these beautiful sunsets just perfectly timed for the end of your sitting. Amazing luminosity behind the mountains. So this is a poem from Laurie Anderson. She writes, in the Tibetan map of the world, the world is a circle and at the center there's an enormous mountain guarded by four gates. And when they draw a map of the world, they draw the map in sand and it takes months and months and then when the map is finished, they say a few prayers, erase it and throw the sand in the nearest river. Last fall, the Dalai Lama came to New York to do a two-week ceremony called the Kala Chakra, which is a prayer to heal the earth. And woven into these prayers were a series of vows that he asked us to take. And before I knew it, I had taken a vow to be kind for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I walked out of there and I thought, for the rest of my life, what have I done? This is a disaster. And I was really worried. Had I promised too much? Not enough? I was really in a panic. They had come from Tibet for the ceremony and they were walking around Midtown in their new brown shoes and I went up to one of the monks and said, can you come with me to have a cappuccino right now and talk? And so we went to this little Italian place. He had never had coffee before so he kept talking faster and faster. <laughs> and I kept saying, look, I don't know whether I promised too much or too little. Can you help me out please? And he was being real practical. He said, look, don't limit yourself. Don't be so strict. Open it up. He said, the mind is a wild white horse, and when you make a corral for it, make sure it's not too small. And another thing, when your house burns down, just walk away. And another thing, keep your eyes open. And one more thing, find the right road, because it's finally time to go home. What had I done for the rest of my life? The Buddhist texts begin, certain of them, with a beautiful phrase, O nobly born, or you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember who you really are. And this, of course, was the invitation last night in Howie's talk of the ideas we have of ourselves that limit us and that reality beyond all those ideas of the undying spirit. And one of the great glories of the Indian and Buddhist imagination is the teachings of the Bodhisattva, of what it means to turn this human incarnation that we've been given into the life of a bodhisattva. And the bodhisattva is a being, there are all kinds of vows that are traditionally given, a being who turns their life or the direction um, toward compassion no matter what. And there's a whole set of traditional vows one might recite. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to bring awakening to them all. Um, that's one version of it. Um, another beautiful version, which comes from Shanti Deva, is the prayer the Dalai Lama takes in the mornings, along with his other prayers. He says, may I be a guard for those who need protection, a guide for those on the path, a raft, a boat, a bridge for those to cross the flood. May I be a lamp in the darkness, a resting place for the weary, May I be medicine for all who are sick, a vase of plenty, a tree of miracles. May I bring food to the hungry and sustenance and awakening, enduring like earth and sky for countless eons until all beings are freed from sorrow and all are awakened. So that is a beautiful and poetic vow. And as Laurie Anderson worried about, quite rightly, it's not a vow that's taken for the retreat or the month or the year. 
the tradition says that the ripening of the bodhisattva takes place over a hundred thousand mahakalpas and four immensities. And a mahakalpa is described as the period of time, if you imagine a mountain as high as Mount Everest, seven yojanas high, and every hundred years a bird flies across the top of the mountain with a silk scarf in her beak and drags it along across the edge of the mountain, wearing it away slightly. When that mountain is worn down by the bird every hundred years, that's one mahakalpa. And so for a hundred thousand mahakalpas, one practices patience and compassion and dedication and truthfulness and, and love and so forth. That's the work of the bodhisattva. Now, one might well consider, you know, this vow. But what it really says when you hear an enormous myth of this um, poetic beauty is not that you're going to run around the world, let's see, who should I save first, the person next to me, you know, the people in my family, they're not really interested, by the way, just in case you hadn't noticed, you know, where do I start liberating beings? And then what you begin to realize is that it speaks of a time outside of time, not temporal time, but beyond the normal time. The vow of the bodhisattva is the vow to take life as it unfolds and to receive it and enter it with a great heart of wisdom and compassion no matter what. So we're about to return in a couple of days to the daily rounds of where we live and our families and communities and work and so forth. And the question that is really important in moving from retreat back in that way is how do we carry the spirit of this retreat? How do we move gracefully between these worlds? How do we keep what we touched and know so deeply here to be true? How do we keep that alive? And of course the modern world doesn't help very much with this unless you want to consider that it helps by providing you just the proper obstacles to learn patience and generosity and dedication and truthfulness. But the modern world is split, as we've talked about and compartmentalized. When, when Larry spoke about the Four Noble Truths, the First Noble Truth of Suffering, and then the causes, personally, of greed and attachment and, uh, and aversion and ignorance, those very causes are also the global causes of suffering. The continuing warfare and racism and conflict and um, injustice and so forth rise out of greed and hatred and delusion and attachment in the same way individually they manifest in a collective way. We have to see it somehow differently. Eduardo Galeano, poet, writes, puts, this, puts it this way. Science says the body is a machine. The church says the body is a sin. The marketplace says the body is a business. The body says I am a fiesta. So we have this world that divides, you know, the market and the church. And I talked about it on the first night and the, you know, work in one place and the sacred in another. And we return to this culture characterized by the absence of the sacred in many of its elements. And the point isn't to bring back the experiences that you've had here, although experiences can be beautiful and inspiring, but the point is actually to embody, not an experience, but a deep inner knowing of who you are. Yeats said that human beings cannot find truth, but they can embody it. So some years ago in Thailand, which has had in the last decades um, as a kind of struggling democracy, periods of democracy, periods of military dictatorship, and kind of back and forth. This was in the 1970s. 
Um, there had been a military coup and military dictatorship. And then the students and some part of the populace um, started a revolution, if you will, in the streets to try and bring back elections. Um, and it got very bloody, one of the only times it had done so in Thailand. But there were huge conflagrations and fights between the students and the, the soldiers of that military dictatorship in the streets of Bangkok. Um, and when it got quite bad, one morning, the abbot of a forest meditation monastery right on the outskirts of Bangkok called all his monks and nuns together and said, dress for a long walk with your alms bowl. And they did. They got up before dawn, and they walked all the way into the center of the city of Bangkok. And here were the barricades and the students with their Molotov cocktails and the um, soldiers on their sides of the barricade. Very heated and, and really dangerous. And the monks and nuns came, 200 of them, and they walk with their robes and bowls, mindfully and centered, right in the open space between the line of fire. And they stood there and did standing meditation all morning. And what they did as they stood there was to bring their metta and their compassion and their composure into the middle of this heated battle and it softened everybody's heart. No one could fire at them. No one could do any. What are we going to do? The monks and nuns are there. We have to stop. I mean, I'd like to hire them to go to a number of other places, but that's another story. I tell you this story because I honestly believe that if we needed to, we could say tomorrow morning, get your shoes and your cloaks and there's some place that we need to go and that as a group we could go and stand in the line of fire or in the middle of conflict with what we have learned and bring a heart of metta and compassion. It's not perfect, I know that, and I've been listening to you, right? But it's, <laughs> it's way good enough and it's really beautiful and you have touched this in you. If one is to do good said William Blake, it must be done in the minute particulars. General good is the plea of the hypocrite, the scoundrel, and the flatterer. So it's not the idea of embodied Buddha nature, but it's actually the way that we live. And I believe over these days that we've each found our way back to some aspect, some genuine bodhisattva nature in ourselves. Now, the bodhisattva is a compound word. Bodhi means liberated or awakened, and sattva means being. It's a being committed to the awakening of all, no matter what happens. Even if the sun should arise in the West and the whole world get turned upside down, and the stock market lose half of its value, and um, various other things happen, the bodhisattva has only one way, which is to meet this too as the realm of compassion, this too as the realm of bringing awakening. To be a bodhisattva, to be awake in this world, means that you must open yourself to the paradox of human life. Buddhist psychology knows this very well, and we talked about this on the first night. So, Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes, he says, If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people out there insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were just necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who among us is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? So the bodhisattva recognizes that it's us. And I see this in the interviews as people come in and they talk about their experiences. There grows 
forgiveness for your humanity and the struggles that you've had and the successes and the failures and the praise and blame that have come to you. There grows a, a meta for your flawed body and, you know, weird personality. We're all weird, you know that. I mean, if you got to know the teachers well, you would be shocked. But then you really wouldn't because, yes, you would. Because we're as normal as you are. But it's beautiful to see, and it's in your faces, is how he said last night, this kind of understanding that grows, not just in the mind, but in the heart and in the being. This paradox of humanity is the spirit that was born into this life and this mysterious body that we've been given in this time and culture. Carl Jung writes about Eros, you know that one, right? He says the erotic, the erotic energy of life is something questionable, isn't it? And will always be so no matter what set of laws are made about it. It belongs on one hand to our original animal nature, which will exist as long as we have an animal body. On the other hand, it is connected with the highest form of spirit, but it blooms only when spirit and instinct are in harmony. If one or the other aspect is missing, an injury occurs. There's a lack of balance that slips into the pathological. Too much of the animal disfigures the civilized human being. Too much culture makes for a sick animal. And you can really feel the paradox or the poem I got from Trudy, which she likes to read from Mary Oliver. She says, two lines, for years and years, I struggled just to love my life. That one line of poetry is half your spiritual life, right there. In those few words, for years and years, I struggled just to love my life. And then the butterfly rose weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much, she said, and vanished into the world. Teach us to care and not to care is a line from T.S. Eliot's poetry that it's so precious and beautiful and needs our tending and at the same time we also have to let it go. So the Bodhisattva awakens in the midst of this mystery of Buddha nature and zip codes and you know all of the things that make our life and personality and self and no self and expansion and contraction. And the Bodhisattva relies on a deep knowing and a deep intention. The deep knowing begins, as Larry spoke about, with the knowing of the Four Noble Truths. That this incarnation and that human life contains, along with unbearable beauty, a great measure of suffering. It simply does. It is woven between joy and sorrow and praise and blame and gain and loss. I was teaching in San Francisco a couple of years ago with um, Pema Chodron, and it was a very big evening event in the Masonic Auditorium. We teaching about compassion, and there were several thousand people. And uh, in the question period, a woman stood up and she said that her partner, lover, had died just a couple weeks before by suicide. And her grief was really raw and she was kind of shaking and weeping and shattered in a certain way. And Pema responded by trying to get her to hold the whole circumstance, all of it, in compassion, in a beautiful way. Every piece, every part. But it's hard, you know, because there's regret 
and shame and if only I had done this and how could this have happened and anger, how dare you? And Oh, it's very complicated and difficult. And I could see how she was struggling in this way. So after the compassion teaching of Hema, I asked her just to stand and open her eyes and look around. And then I said, how many other people in this room have also lost a family member or someone really close to you from suicide? And maybe two or three hundred people stood up, you know, eight percent, ten percent. And I said, would you, who've been through this, look at her with understanding? And to this woman, would you look around and just see these, what, the gaze of these people around you? And there was so much tenderness in that moment from people who knew suffering and knew it in another. And for the bodhisattva, this deep knowing is a knowing that there is suffering and that the heart is great enough to bear it, to hold it, that within you is the great heart of a Buddha. And yes, you will suffer, and we all will in our way and in our time. What do you do with it? Elie Wiesel, the Nobel laureate, writes, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. So the bodhisattva is not afraid of the measure of sorrows that's given. It is part of life. And, and we understand it and use it as the, the, the source of opening compassion. I was helping to lead a men's retreat in Mendocino with Michael Mead, Luis Rodriguez, this quite extraordinary um, poet from Los Angeles, who works a lot with gang kids, um, Mali Doma Somme, a West African medicine man, others. And at these men's retreats, we have this lodge way, way deep in the redwood forest, um, far away from anything, this old stone lodge. And we have about 100 men who will come. And over these last years, they've become very much multicultural retreats. So. Um, we also try to work with young men coming out of the gangs in inner cities from Los Angeles and Oakland, Chicago. We bring them there with their mentors in groups. And there's storytelling and myths and poems and rituals and drumming and meditation, and all kinds of things um, that we practice together. And in the evenings, we set candles in this lodge and we simply stand up and tell the stories of our lives, where we are as men, and how hard it is, basically. Because if you haven't noticed, it's hard to be a man. It is. It's hard to be a woman, too, I know that, at least by inference, but I can say the other firsthand. And so one night, uh, after a few nights of this, making altars and prayers and talking and so forth, the youngest kid from this one group, gang group, came stood up, he was probably 16, the youngest man there. And he was kind of shaking, he said, I gotta talk. He said, because I was, you know, back in the neighborhood, this was only a couple months ago. He said, and we were, I don't know, he was from Jordan Downs. And we were headed over to the part of the territory that's on the border between the Crips and the Bloods. This undeclared war in the streets. And we see this car coming and its windows are all tinted and it's moving slow and you go, oh, this doesn't look good because it's coming from the other side. And we start running, being afraid of a drive-by and the window rolls down and they start shooting. And the youngest kid in the gang who couldn't run so fast gets shot. And he, was a, he said, I just love this kid, but I kept running, I didn't know what to do. And then I stopped and the car went out of the way. And then, People are screaming and I hear this police sirens and I run back and I'm holding him and he's dying. And the police say, you can't 
touch him. This is a murderer. You get away. And I say, but this is my guy. And he's just standing there weeping, telling this story, which is so wrenching. And um, all of a sudden, um, two guys over from him was standing a couple of vets who were there on the retreat. Um, one who'd come back from Ramadi and one from Fallujah Marines, also young men, 23 and so forth. And the gang kids really admired these older older men, you know, who, because, you know, first they've had bigger weapons and been in worse fights. And, you know, they're these guys with tattoos and they've really been, you know, through the battle. And this Marine... Young Marine goes over and puts his arms around this guy who's weeping and said, you did the right thing. Said, when the firefights start, you got to get down, you got to get out of the way, but you never desert your man. You always go back. So they're standing there and we're all weeping. And then this young Marine says, it's really quiet, and he says, yeah, I saw the same thing. He said, I can't tell you what I saw. And I can't tell you what I did. And he says, like one night I'm standing at this checkpoint and it's twilight and these people are coming up and there'd been all these suicide bombers and these people are coming up, you know, and I say, stop, stop, we gotta get checked, stop. And this one guy keeps coming and I say, stop, stop, and he won't stop and I shoot him up. And then the women start shrieking and people, and finally somebody translates, don't you know the old man was deaf? And so he's standing there weeping and carrying the suffering of battle. And at this moment, Michael Mead, mythologist and amazing poet and teacher stands up. And he says, I have to tell you a story. We're all standing there in the candlelight in the dark. And he says, in old Ireland, there was a famous warrior named Coquulain, most famous Irish warrior. And Coquulain would go out, the Irish were, were amazing and, and wild warriors, kind of insane. They would go out naked, paint their bodies, and you know, they were generally so fierce looking, people would just run away. But anyway, there was some attack that was coming to this little kingdom where, where he lived. So he got in his chariot and he went out and almost single-handedly defeated wildly this enemy but he became so possessed by the gods of war, by Mars, by Ares, that when the battle was over, he was covered with blood and he turned his chariot around and he started to come back home toward his hometown and village, but he was still in the mode of, of Mars and he was ready to kill the next thing he saw. And the villagers and the people were frightened what to do and so they called the old wise woman of the village very quickly. What should we do? And she said, there are three things to do. First, she got all the women of the village to stand in a line and bear their breasts. This slowed him down. <laughs> and you can hear archetypally what it is. It's really reminding him of the taste of his mother's milk. It slowed him down enough so that the second thing they did was to tie a rope around him and put him in this great cauldron of cool water and the battle hissed off him and it all kind of evaporated and they poured water again and it hissed until he was cool. And then the third thing is they took him still bound and lay him on the carpet in front of the local king and queen and for three days and nights they sang to him and they told him stories of great warriors who had gone to battle protected the community and come back and finally return to their gardens and their homes and their community. And when Michael finished telling that story, a hundred men stood up and we'd been singing these beautiful African songs. And in the dark with these candles, for about half an hour, we simply sang to these men. And it's as if we sang them back into their bodies. And I've been involved recently with different kinds of trauma work, one of the things that I do, and a little bit with vets. And what's true is that there is a million 
approximately a million people who've gone to Iraq and Afghanistan as soldiers in some fashion or other, or contract or something, who are or will be coming back. And how are we going to meet them? Most of them are traumatized because the rules of engagement are such that you don't know who the enemy is. So you're on high alert all the time, or you were. You are in Afghanistan and you were for a long time in Iraq. What do we do? How do we touch the wounded among us? Because if we don't tend to it, that woundedness gets woven back into our society and it recreates itself in the next war. So the Bodhisattva knows that you don't turn away from the sorrows of the world, but you say, as Elie Wiesel spoke, that you bear your suffering well, you turn it into something of value. And the most beautiful thing about that story is that these two guys, the two Marines that I spoke of, and several others, a, a number of other um, ex-Marines and ex-Army people coming back, are now doing full-time work with gang kids to help them get out of gangs. They're taking the experience that happened to them and turning it into a healing work for those who need it. So the Bodhisattva says, I will take the measure of, of difficulty that's given to me and I will turn toward it with as great a heart of compassion as I can and use it somehow to bring awakening, love, compassion alive in the world. Now the Bodhisattva also has to understand emptiness. couple of texts. When I, the bodhisattva of no rank, kind of humility, look through awakened eyes at the forms of this universe, all that appears is the never-ending manifestation, the unfolding of truth itself in mystery. This realization brings freedom and joy beyond comprehension, and it gives birth to tender care and a worshiping heart for all beings, beasts and birds, trees and flowers, even the rocks and waters. The bodhisattva who aims to fulfill their spiritual discipline must understand that everything is produced by mind itself. And to be free from such notions as birth and abiding and death, to have touched that which is timeless and to earnestly desire that other beings awaken to this eternal spirit. It is actually, I mean, it is all made of mind. It's all a play of consciousness. And um, you had your own way of seeing that this week depending on the states of consciousness you were in. It was beautiful, it was terrible, it's small, it was large. It seemed like one sitting would last for a million years and you couldn't wait for it to end, and another went by like that, because it all is the play of mind. And there's a deep freedom that comes from this. A couple from snowy Minnesota decided to take a winter vacation back in the simple Florida resort where they'd stayed for a honeymoon 25 years before. This wasn't red here, was it? Just checking. Because, because of his de wife's delayed work schedule, the husband went first, and then when he got there, he received a message that she would meet him soon. So he sent her this email in reply, but because he typed one letter wrong in the email address, it went by mistake to an old woman in Oklahoma whose minister husband had just died the day before. Here is what she read. Dearest, well, the journey is over and I finally arrived. I was surprised to find they have email here now. <laughs> they tell me you'll be coming soon. It will be good to be together again. Love as always. P.S. Be prepared, it's quite hot down here. <laughs> <laughs> Do you 
John Ashbery, a very wonderful and well-known poet, was doing a reading one evening in this poetry gathering. He read a few poems and then asked for questions, and a young woman raised, their hand and, raised her hand and said, is that a real poem or did you make it up? <laughs> You've been sitting and walking, and you see that the mind makes up everything. It's what Howie was teaching last night, doesn't it? And then you believe these stories. The Bodhisattva sees the play of form and emptiness and stories, I'm good, I'm bad, this is this way, this is that way. They're all just different perspectives that come and go. And the Bodhisattva knows this truth and discovers through this knowing a freedom in the midst. So Jarvis Masters, who lives on death row in San Quentin prison, has taken Bodhisattva vows He's written, there's a beautiful book that he wrote. Um, from, he wrote, took his bodhisattva vows from a lama named Thrangu Rinpoche. Um, and he said, I try to practice them here inside in San Quentin. And I've, been, I've done a bit of work in San Quentin and been involved with prison, prison work. Um, and Jarvis said, so one day in the winter, after a rainstorm, we were all out in the yard. And the yard in San Quentin is a really strange paradox, speaking of paradox, because there's concertina wire and these fences and these guard towers with people with automatic rifles pointed down at you. And right beyond the fence is San Francisco Bay with sailboats and Mount Tamalpais and, and kind of the most beautiful piece of real estate in, in Northern California. But you can't go out to it. So there he was out in the yard and there's it had rained, so there were these big puddles, and a seagull lands in one of the puddles, splashing around. And then this young guy, who was a prisoner next to Jarvis, reaches down and picks up a rock to throw it at the seagull, which is, you know, kind of what young men do sometimes. They shoot stuff and throw stuff and things like that. It's in their hunting thing, anyway. Um, it is. and. Um, as a bodhisattva, Jarvis said he didn't even think about it. He stuck out his arm and stopped him. And you don't do that. You don't mess with people's personal space in prison like that. And the guy got really started yelling, what'd you do that for? And you know, what do you, you know, who do you think you are? And you know, all this stuff. And the yard got really quiet, like something's gonna come down and there's gonna be a fight or whatever. And Jarvis turns to him and says, that bird got my wings. And the guy lowers the rocks and looks at that bird got my wings. What the hell does that mean? You know? But he puts down the rock. And they just sit there for a while. And then Jarvis gets up and walks away. If you're in trouble, say something really bizarre. <laughs> and for weeks afterward, when Jarvis was out in, you know, the prison in the wards, people would say, Jarvis, that bird got my wings. What's that mean? What did you mean? And Jarvis never answered them. But you know what it means. You all know what it means. And you know as well as I do, and you found it here in some of your sitting and walking, that the noise of the traffic or the heat of the day or the coughing of the person next to you or the ache in your leg or, or you know, the stories that, of unworthiness or desire or so forth, that that doesn't limit you, that that's not who you really are. You know that there is a freedom that is untouchable and that the greatest of freedoms is to choose your spirit no matter what the circumstance. That bird got my wings. So how does a bodhisattva practice? The bodhisattva knows that freedom is possible. The bodhisattva turns toward and works with the sorrows of the world as well as its beauty. You don't just focus on sorrow, but is unafraid to open to the beauty and the sorrows of the world. And the bodhisattva makes this deep intention. From one text it said, with the release from all clinging, 
thoughts and images, emotions and sensations arise and pass without any clinging and the luminous nature of mind is revealed, the spacious nature of mind. And now there is awakened in you exceeding compassion and you will offer yourself for the liberation of all beings, even though your meditations have cleansed away any idea that such beings exist apart from yourself. So the freer you get, the freer you are to serve, but also you realize who you serve, which is yourself, us, being nothing, I am everything. Wisdom says I am nothing, love says I am everything. Bishop Tutu writes, he says, in Africa, when you ask a person, how are you, they always respond in the plural, even if it's just one person there. A man will say, we are well, or we are not well. He himself might be quite well, but his grandmother is sick, so he says, we are not well. The idea of a separate individual is truly a fiction. So the Bodhisattva knows this and says, all right, I make the vow to bring compassion and liberation to all, which is to set the compass of your heart in the direction of awakening and serve what arises in front of you. You set the compass of your heart in this vow, if you will, and then you say, well, where does the Bodhisattva start? You start where you are. You can't measure it in time, 100,000 mahakalpas of the mountain worn away by the bird with a silk scarf in its beak. Okay, let's see, it's 8, 12, how, how, you know, how many mahakalpas have passed so far and how am I doing? You can't do that. You can't measure it that way. Because actually you're living in the present, in the reality of the present, which is eternity. And in this eternal moment, you awaken the heart of the Bodhisattva. So one of my favorite stories of the Bodhisattva, when Mahatma Gandhi died in India, he was shot, the whole Gandhian movement collapsed and was in disarray. India got its independence. And not much happened for a couple of years with the Gandhians. But then they saw that there were a lot of problems that still existed in India that needed a response. Um, and many of Gandhi's teachings would be really important. So they decided to have a big gathering of all the followers of Gandhi and they asked Vinoba Bhave, who had been the chief Dharma successor to Gandhiji, if he would lead the conference. Wes went to visit Vinoba in his ashram in Warda some years ago to see Vinoba. And Vinoba said, no, the movement's over, you know, let's not try and recreate the past. He was quite resistant, but they kept pressing, we have these problems, please, please. Finally, Vinoba said, all right, I'll do it, but I want to walk. Walk from where he lived all the way across India, postpone the conference for a year, half a year. So they did. And he walked, and he was walking through Maharashtra state, and he came to these really poor villages, and would sit out under the tree in the center of the village with the villagers and listen as Gandhi used to, to the circumstances of people's lives. And some of the villagers said, we have not enough to eat, we don't have enough to feed our children. And Vinoba said, well, why don't you, buy, why don't you grow some food? And why do you just sit there and not do something about it? And they said, we are untouchables. We are not allowed to own land. Ah, but in this new India, you can't own land, Vinoba said. And when I go back to New Delhi, I will talk to Prime Minister Nehru, who he knew, and we'll see if we can get a law passed getting land for the untouchables. And he was happy and they were happy. But he went to sleep and he didn't sleep well. And he thought about it and he said, you know, knowing government the way they do, even if we can pass that law in the next years, as the land is distributed between the provinces and the districts and the village councils and all the different, you know, levels of government, which all will take a piece, by the time it gets down to the untouchables, they're not going to get much land. 
So he said that in the morning. He called them all together and said, I'm sorry, I, I said that, but I don't think that's going to work. I don't know what to do. And a man stood up, wealthy man from the village, and said, how much land do they need? There were 16 families, five acres each. They need 80 acres. 80 acres. He said, I have land I will give. In the spirit of Gandhi, in respect for Gandhiji, I will give this land. Vinoba said, no, go home, speak with your family who will inherit this, make sure it's okay. He did, and the next day the land was offered to these 16 families. Then Vinoba walked to the next village, met under the tree, heard the same kind of stories, and told what happened in the first village. Sure enough, another man stood up. How many families? 20 families? Ah. You know, we need 100 acres. I will offer. Same kind of process. Land was offered in the name of Gandhi. By the time Vinoba got to the conference, he had collected 2,300 acres of land. And that was the beginning of the Bhutan Indian land reform movement. And after that, Vinoba and his followers walked on foot through every state and every province and most districts in India over several years and collected 14 million acres of land that was transferred to the poorest people of India. Biggest land transfer of that kind ever in modern history. And all because he said, let me take, let me take time to walk and listen and see what needs to be done. There comes a kind of trust when you leave the retreat. Pablo Neruda says, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. And we get worried, quite rightfully, about certain conditions in the world. But the Bodhisattva knows that you plant the seeds of goodness, and they will eventually and inevitably bear fruit. Thomas Merton puts it this way, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no result at all, if not perhaps bring about its opposite. As you get used to this, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. Can you hear that? So you get to plant your seeds in the garden of the world and you get to allow them to grow. Now another important thing to know about the Bodhisattva is that this caring and tending for the world, and you do it in the measure that you can. Ajahn Chah, my teacher, was walking one day near the monastery with some monks and there was this great big stone. He said, see that boulder there? Is it heavy? And the monk said, yes. And he said, not if you don't pick it up. The problem with the word compassion, when it's translated in the English language from Tibetan and Sanskrit and so forth, is that in those languages, the word compassion always includes yourself. But here it's as if you can be compassionate for that poor person over there as if they're separate from you. But compassion, the circle of compassion, is incomplete if you are not included, then it just becomes codependence with some compassion mixed together. But it's like you're, you're really thinking, I have to take care of all these people and this one doesn't count. And that's not the way of the bodhisattva. So you start with the small things and you always include, is this compassionate for this one as well as them? Because if you don't love and have compassion for yourself, how can you really be the bodhisattva for the others? And then the bodhisattva appears in so many forms. And you know, I tell these glorious stories, but it's simple ones too. Those little books they sell in the drugstore, children's letters to God, you know, in their handwriting. Dear God, this is a second grader, Maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with me and my brother, Larry, you know. So the bodhisattvas are also really practical. It's, it's not like this huge thing, right? 
It's tending to what's there. There was a, uh, a special on television a few years ago to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the siege of Leningrad. And during the Second World War, when the German army advanced as far as it could, Nazi um, army into Russia, it got stopped at, at Leningrad, or St. Petersburg now, and besieged the city for three years. And I think it was 700,000 people died in this, it's a very big city. Um, and this old woman was telling her story to the camera, being a child at that time, and what it was like, and how cold the winters were, how little food, and how frightened they were, and so forth. And she said, then one morning my mother sent me out to get bread for her to stand in line, get the week's ration for herself and my sister and me. And I stood in line, and finally I got my piece of bread, and it was a cold morning and raining, and I, I went out, Side, walked out the door, and I slipped, and my bread fell into a mud puddle and became all muddy. And I just sat down and I started to weep. And then a woman walked out the door right behind me, who'd seen me, and walked up to me and took her piece of bread and tore it in half and gave me half of her bread. And then this old woman, a babushka, with her, you know, kerchief over her head and so forth started to go down the hallway in her apartment. The camera followed her into her kitchen and she opened a cabinet and took out this ceramic bowl um, and took the cover off it and took out a, a napkin and unfolded it. And there was a little piece of bread that she'd saved and she held it up and she said, this is what gave me hope for all those years. Not a big thing, a little piece of bread, the simplest gesture, the, the smile to somebody who's really having a tough day, you know, the, the gesture of respect for someone who hasn't had the offering of respect to them. We tend to think of it in these great, enormous ways, but really, you get to be the bodhisattva in this most unique and glorious way that is your own bodhisattvaness, like your maliness. It's your own bodhisattvaness in your own life. A school principal liked to make sandwiches for the homeless in her neighborhood several days a week after school, if she wasn't tired, she took the pleasure of making sandwiches and then going down and distributing them. And she didn't care if people thanked her, sometimes they refused. She was doing it because it felt what was right to do. And after some time, the local media found out about it and she became a kind of minor celebrity in her area. Inspired by her work, other teachers and colleagues began to send her money for her ministry. To their surprise, they all received their money back with a short note that read, make your own damn sandwiches. Right? It can't be done by imitation. It comes from returning to who we really are and finding it in your home, in your garden, you know, and it's making a conscious business and it's raising a child with thoughtfulness and care, and it's planting your garden, and it's uh, you know um, healing, if that's what you're called for. It's being an artist. All of these are the forms of the bodhisattva. Vimalakirti bodhisattva used to appear. He made himself appear in all these places. He would go into the hospitals and pretend to be sick so he could teach dharma to the doctors and nurses because they needed it. You know, and he would go in the bars and pretend to be a drunkard and so he could teach the Dharma to all those who were in the bars. And there's this great story about Bim, great long kind of story of Vimalakirti's life. And basically, wherever there was that people were suffering, he would say, oh, I'll go there and I'll hang out with them and we'll talk Dharma. We'll bring that spirit. So many different ways to do it.
psychologist Lee Len Bergantino writes about a series of frustrating therapy sessions with this client who was disconnected and detached and then trying to please him and all these things. And he said, the feeling I had finally on this day, I just didn't want to say one more word to him about anything. So to his surprise, I took up my mandolin and in the most mellow and beautiful way I could, I played Come Back to Sorrento. And he broke down in tears and cried for the last 40 minutes of the session, saying only, Bergantino, you sure earned your money today. And I replied, to think I wasted all those years talking to people. <laughs> Just needed to sing to them and love them. There's so many ways to be a bodhisattva. And you can be playful about it and joyful about it. Howard Zinn writes, to be hopeful in hard times, which we have, is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our fate. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something to respond. But if we remember the times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act and the possibility of sending this spinning world in the direction of what is good. To live now as human beings, we should live in defiance of all that is bad around us to offer ourselves in this way is a marvelous victory. And Thomas Merton, in this new biography of Houston Smith that was just given to me, and there's this kind of dialogue he had meeting Thomas Merton when Merton was in India and visiting the Dalai Lama. They were both going to run off to the Himalayas together. They talked about that for a while. Um, being pilgrims in Nepal, he said, I'll write my wife, and if she doesn't agree, I'll divorce her, said, said Houston. And Thomas Merton said, and I'll write Father Superior, and if he doesn't agree, he can defrock me, and then we'll go together. But anyway, they were talking, you know, and just enjoying themselves. And then Merton had to speak to this conference, and he said, I stand before you tonight to represent the people who do not count, the poor, the poets, and the monks and nuns. And as long as there are people who are trying to realize the divine in themselves, there will always be hope in this world. So you've done that in your own way in this retreat together, and you carry the understanding and the freedom that's come to you in moments and sittings and walkings, and you know you have in you this potential of great compassion how much it can grow, and great freedom. It is your gift to offer to the world. So let's sit.
sitting in stillness in this vast desert on a full moon night. Remember your true nature, your own Buddha nature, the great heart of compassion can blossom in you. Thank you. So stay very careful with the silence for this last day or so until it's time to break it, which we will late tomorrow afternoon. We'll have a whole process of mindful speech. But until then, be really careful with it, because this, this is a beautiful part of the retreat. Um, go enjoy the moonlight and walk, come back and sit, and then chant. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.